I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the Mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, what happens when the story you tell yourself gets interrupted by catastrophe, either by a pandemic, volcano, or a hurricane? But first... Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who's traveled the world, raced international for teens, and crossed the Atlantic countless times, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Thank you, Todd. That was that seemed awfully long, like I did something in my <laughs> long life. Yeah. Rather than sit on the back of a boat and drink wine and beer. Yeah. But- <laughs> Yeah. Well, we we tend to forget our accomplishments, right? Well, I I try not to dwell on them. I think one of the things is is when you're uh, young, like I am, that you try to move forward with a certain amount of alacrity and and spirit, and it just keeps you younger. And you know, life. A friend of mine told me he said, "Life is long, and then you die." So I'm going to go by that, and I don't know if it makes sense to anybody, but uh, yeah, it's an exciting, it's good to keep excited, it's good to keep churning and doing new things, and it's just, it's fun, so. Yeah, so so tell me, Scott, what is the theme for today's episode? Well, today's theme is, is about writing your own story. It's about... When we face tragedy, and we all face some sort of tragedy, personal or public, how we react during that tragedy is, is what we call writing your story. Now, some people do it really well, and some people don't do it really well. Different personalities react to tragedy and different, uh, different situations, uh, But we have to kind of keep moving forward. One of the things that I try to illustrate in this story is that there's different outcomes. There's a positive outcome and there's a negative outcome. And it all depends on how you view your narrative in retrospect from that very moment that you dealt with that tragedy. And these are key markers in one's life. Um, and I think that's, that's what I was going for in this. Plus, there's some interesting sailing stories. You know, I couldn't go by for much longer without having to mention the COVID-19 virus sort of racing through humanity and causing all sorts of problems and deaths and untold economic and emotional misery. I've known many tragedies in my life, uh, some personal, some public. Uh, These tragedies have burnished an impression on my soul far deeper than normal. We, as a modern people, have lived with far less tragedy uh, than our parents and forefathers. Uh, 
And the reason I'm sort of getting into this subject is we're all dealing with a momentous historical event with this pandemic. And how we react to that, how we carry ourselves, the dignity, how we carry ourselves, and hopefully with some dignity and understanding and compassion, is the story or the narrative that we write for ourselves. We control our own narrative. We control our own stories. You would hate to get to an older age and look back and regret the way that you dealt with this, this event. Now, I've had to deal with a lot of these events, but I think it all comes from the beginning. My grandmother and grandfather were born in 1900. My grandmother was 18 years old and lived in Philadelphia when the Spanish flu struck and she lost her parents at 18. Now, she was supposed to go to secretarial college, which was expensive. And it would have meant that she'd have a job, she'd have money, she'd have a future. But instead, she had to go live with an aunt who owned a chicken farm. And her job was pulling feathers off of dead chickens for the next five years. She never ate bird again. No Thanksgiving turkey, no fried chicken, never. She was a beef and sometimes pork and fish eater. Well, she got lucky. She met my grandfather, who was a dashing newspaper man. And they remained married for over 60 years. As a couple, they made it through the Depression. They managed to survive World War II. She worked in the Philadelphia Navy shipyard building, actually, airplanes. My grandfather worked for the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin. They raised two children. They bought a house down the shore in Ocean City, New Jersey, and were lifetime Eagles and Phillies fans. Both my grandparents were regular working-class folks. Pop was quiet. When he did say something, it was usually important. Granny was the opposite. She had strong feelings about everything, from the best deli to how the government was run. Let's say, in today's environment, she was totally, and I mean totally, politically incorrect with her language. But one bit of advice that both my grandfather and grandmother imparted to me was control my narrative. Those were my grandfather's words. He was a writer. My grandmother had the same advice, only said differently. Take care of yourself and your family or you'll be plucking chickens and nobody wants to do that job. Not even, please insert a minority slang there. This advice has fortified me uh, through thick and thin. I first became aware of kind of protecting my own narrative uh, when I was in Vietnam. Uh, I've written a couple of pieces about it, and to be honest, uh, I'm not going to get into uh, talking about it today. Um, but let's just say war disrupts one's 
personal narrative, and it has a tendency to write other people's narratives, which they never, they never get over. I mean, when I see a 60-year-old Vietnam or 70-year-old Vietnam vet, that that's all he's still talking about is Vietnam, I wonder what he did with the rest of his life. So even in counseling, people say, hey, you got to get over it, put it in a box, move it forward. I work with a lot of guys that have been in Iraq. We talk about these things. And hopefully most of them are starting to move on. But the people that I saw while I was there, with homes burned to the ground, their friends and neighbors imprisoned or killed, created a long, angry narrative for them. And that anger is like a a slash across your soul. It's like a sword been stuck right into it. It's always there. It's always festering. So it's something you have to live with. But one thing that I observed through all of that is that there's a certain amount of self-indulging behavior. You know, I feel like if you're self-indulgent, if you're, if you're afraid, uh, your fear is going to ruin your life. I think people who, who, who embrace the circumstances, keep their head up, you know, deliberately embrace their narrative to say, okay, this is, this, is the, this is the paragraph of my life that I've got to get right. It's got to be good. It's got to be elegant. It's got to be uh, practical. It has to be honorable. And the one thing I've observed from that sort of behavior is that people that just think about themselves all the time and think about that are narcissistic, they're the ones that suffer the most because they can't understand why the world is doing this thing to them. When in fact, it's not doing it to them at all. They're just a participant in this timeline. There's a narrative. How You write your narrative. That's how that works. So I'm going to reveal something. It's very emotional for me and, and quite personal on another tragedy that I had to deal with. Um, one of the more difficult things to do to deal with is a family member dying. Uh, my sister, she was murdered when she was 19, and she represented a huge part of my early narrative. She was, even though she was my little sister, she was a kind of spiritual guide for me. And even though I was busy and, you know, going different places. I was a year and a half older than she was. There was still a great deal of, of respect and, and honor that I gave her. I watched my parents cope after her, her death. Now for me, it was, it was, it was maybe the most confusing emotional time of my life because I actually was in Vietnam found out about her death, flew home, buried her, then turned around and flew back to Vietnam. So that that narrative is a story unto itself. It's, it's, a, it's a novel. But I watched my parents try to cope with it. My father had an extremely difficult time 
My dad was a bit of a narcissist and he suffered. He smoked, he drank, um, he was mean, uh, not to, you know, not directly, but he was just, he had an attitude that he was always grumpy and mean and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And it, and I think it really hurt him. My mother, like a lot of women, sort of internalized the pain and kept her head up. And at the time, my grandfather and grandmother were still alive and they were very supportive. And it, my grandmother gave her, my mother, advice all the time. I remember when I was home, uh, she was talking to my grandmother and my grandmother came across with the old, you know, if you don't buck up, you're going to be plucking chickens advice. My mother hung up on her. She said, if I hear that one more time, she said, I'm going to go pluck chickens. But a mother can have that experience. She can bury a child. And that's a part of her narrative. That is her narrative. And it's a deep, heartfelt narrative. My father chose to think of himself first rather than, you know, reaching out and allowing, the narr- allowing him to, to be a part of his own narrative in a different way. After that long and emotional preface, I have two stories, sailing stories. So the first one is, is sort of about the same thing, about controlling one's narrative. It's two stories. And the, f- the first story is, is, if you had to do a subtitle to it, is what we value may not be valuable. So in July of 1995, I was sitting at the dock in English Harbor in Antigua between charters when a call came over the radio to, uh, hey, you know, we, we need your boat. We need your help. Uh, there was going to be an evacuation for Montserrat. Uh, Montserrat is, uh, is a volcanic island, and the volcano, which had been dormant for years and years and years and years, had erupted and essentially destroyed the capital of Plymouth, the docks, the airport. And the people of Montserrat had like 12 feet of mud covering their entire island along with all this ash. Plus, there was lava rolling down the streets. So a flotilla was organized, and we headed, all of us headed full steam to uh, a rendezvous spot on the north side of the island. There's a small bay there that normally you wouldn't go into. It's just too rough to anchor in there, but it's, a, it's one of those, looks like it could be okay, but it ain't kind of bays. But because people were cut off from the city and they were escaping the mud and the lava, um, they were stuck on the beach and they were very afraid. So there were, there were, there were about 40 vessels there. Um, there were ferries. There were, long, um, there were local island hoppers. There were fishing boats, luxury yachts, military vessels. And actually sitting off the coast with the, was a U.S. Navy submarine and a British destroyer and a Dutch frigate. I mean, it was like, where'd all these guys come from? But anyway, people stood in lines on the beaches, right? And they were given life vests and each vessel moved in to a fairly close position on the shore. 
and the local fishing guys, they brought people out in the boat. I managed to take 30 people on my vessel. And that's a 54 CT. It was more than stout enough to handle the extra passengers. You know, U.S. Coast Guard rules, forgotten and forgiven. Um, We were saving lives. But you could feel the heat that close to the island. You could feel the heat. It was pretty freaking amazing. And the air was filled with these like glass-like particles. And the particles... They would lay on, they'd get on the, the deck, the deck house, and eat the paint. So it was, it was like, that's not cool breathing this stuff in. So we found, I found everybody a place to sit. And my mate, Maggie, uh, she passed out water and drinks to everybody. And, um, I pat, we passed out crackers to the kids. And, you know, everyone was relieved, but kind of sad. And we turned around and we went to Antigua. And it's a it's about a six-hour trip. We were motor, motor sailing. Um, Maggie and a couple of the women pitched in and, and made dinner for everyone. We had chicken and pasta and salad and soup and anything that we had in the fridge. Um, we were prepared to go on a charter in the next three or four days, so we had done some shopping. And then I saw there was a couple of men sitting there, some old guys, some old local Montserrat guys, and they were sitting there, and um, they were singing. And they were singing Bob Marley's Redemption Song. And actually, one of the coolest things is, is that as we're sailing along, and we had a lovely sail, one of the guys came over to me, and he said, hey, do you want me to take over at the helm? Because I had been, you know, six, seven hours there, the loading, the waiting and stuff. I'd been, I'd already, you know, been at the helm for about uh, 12, 15 hours. And um, it was really nice of him to do that. He laughed and he told me that for hundreds of years that his family had been living with that volcano and it, it never burped. And he just laughed and everybody on the boat started laughing. He said, what did he say? He said, oh, the volcano burped. Everybody started laughing. Oh, the, the volcano burped. He says, he said, but now, he said, I'm grateful to be alive. Thanks be to God. And I'm happy to have the history. Sitting on a plastic bucket ain't no history. Now I can say that I have seen the volcano and I have a relationship with it. Ha! And I just thought at that moment, this is how you write your own, your own narrative. His house was destroyed. His house was just bowled over by mud. But he opted to write a positive narrative about his life and his relationship to the tragedy that just occurred to him. When he was just standing there with just a couple of things that he had grabbed and his wife, and I don't know how many kids, but there were a lot of kids, and I didn't know which ones were his. But anyway... There was a sort of gratefulness and positiveness in let's write our own narrative. So they embraced their story of survival. So for me, over the last 50 years or so, I have developed an attitude about drastic events. 
I remain calm. I deal with what is in front of me. I don't worry about things I can't control. And I'm hoping to pass this advice on to you. story is about how one doesn't write his own narrative. I've been on my boat in five hurricanes. I'll do individual stories on the hurricanes later in my blogs, but I am focusing on an experience with Hurricane Bertha and how losing one's narrative can tragically end up in death. In 1996, I was anchored off the Four Seasons Hotel in Nevis. Nevis, St. Kitts is the country. I chose not to do a crossing that year to Greece because there was a war going on in the Balkans. Tourism was way down, and uh, I just decided that I could make some money if I stuck it out in the Caribbean. I had been through four hurricanes at that point, um, a cyclone, numerous tropical depressions, which are sometimes almost worse. And I was doing day charters for the hotel. It was easy money and a lot of fun, a lot of work, but I kept an eye on the weather like any reasonable sailor. And during, because during the summer, there are a lot of tropical depressions that come that get, some get formed into hurricanes and some just remain tropical depressions. And they have all sorts of paths. But Nevis St. Kitts is pretty far south in the Windward Islands. It's not the Grenadines, but it's, you know, it's far enough south. And a lot of times what happens is the hurricane will either fizzle out, just be a drop, you know, a little blow, or it'll veer north because it all wants to go north. That's kind of the thing, you know, it went, it'll be north of St. Thomas and Puerto Rico, maybe, you know, go over the Bermudas or, you know, turn and get caught up in the Gulf Stream and, and head north up to North Carolina, New York, Boston. So, you know, we're just going along doing our same old thing. And there was uh, this mess that they called, they didn't name it yet. It was a tropical depression. It was a couple hundred miles from my position. And they had, they, they named it right then, but it was really north of me and the trajectory and the direction it was going, there'd be no way. I knew I would get some wind. I might get some rain, but I felt at the time that this was going to go past me. Well, I was wrong. I was in an anchorage on the right across, uh, right in front of the hotel on the western side of the island, which is, is, there's no real protection. It's not really an anchorage per se, except in calm weather. And the uh, weather service predicted that it would go north of St. Martin. But once it's had its name, she was coming at us. She was officially a Cat 1. And within six hours, she was upgraded to a Cat 3 with winds consistently at 115 miles per hour. Here's the kicker. 
Very rarely do they do this, but Bertha turned southwest. And we had no time to get out of that anchorage and get away because it would track right over Nevis St. Kitts. So I have my own theories on hurricane stuff. I believe the less kit you have on the ground, the better off you are. And it depends on your anchorage, of course, on how you apply this. And I may actually get into doing a whole hurricane weathering, con you know, how to do it. But in this case, I was open, wide open to the ocean. So I knew that the wind was going to shift and it was going to come around and it would be between, I would be between the hurricane eye and the wind and the shore and the surf of the island Nevis. So I put out one hook and I thought, okay, maybe it'll pass over, maybe I won't drag, whatever. And I put out a night, I have a beautiful Bruce anchor that I put out. And I put all my chain out. I buoyed the anchor so I could find it again because I knew I was never going to see, I would see it again, but I wasn't going to bring it all up in the middle of a storm. I was just going to cut it, cut the chain, um, or just allow it to go out. And then I would maneuver off and let it go to the bottom. I didn't need that anchor. I had another anchor. And then I would just drive away if I had to. So there was another guy, his name was Charlie. There was a boat in the anchorage, and Charlie was just a friend of the owner. And um, it was a swan, really nice boat. It was like a you know, 45, 50 foot, I can't remember precisely. But anyway, it was a swan, and it was a nice boat. And I have no idea. The owner left this guy, Charlie. You know, Charlie's in his 40s. He's, you know, he was a jeweler. And he had been down there buying some stones and they had this business thing and it was a little bit shady here, a little bit shady there. But, you know, when you're in the Caribbean, you meet people like this. this is, you know, if you're, if you're not a tourist, you meet a lot of different kind of people. So Charlie was on this boat with absolutely zero experience in sailing. I mean, he, but he was there to watch the boat. So he called me up on the radio. He came over in his dinghy. We talked about it. And, you know, I said, well, I'll try to help you out as much as possible. You know, keep your radio on channel seven. And then we could talk back and forth on seven. And, you know, I'll let you know what I'm doing and where I'm at. I took him. We, we anchored. I, I showed him where he should anchor if we're going to ride this thing out. I explained what the methodology was going to be. You know, if, if you're in a storm like that and you're anchored and the, the waves are starting to get intense, you start dragging anchor, just let the chain, let the whole, let the whole kit and caboodle go. Let it go to the bottom. You can come back and get it later because you don't want to be out on your foredeck trying to do that, that stuff, uh, during a storm with waves and all the rest of that kind of stuff. You want to be able to drop it. It's as simple as that. So Charlie was on the boat by himself. We talked on the radio. About 11 o'clock at night, it was really blowing hard at 11 o'clock at night. And I decided to make a pie, a cherry pie. So I had had all the fixings. And so I made a pie and I was, you know, I was baking a pie. 
And during this period, now I'm on the hook. The boat is, you know, obviously going up and down. I'm not sleeping. But I'm also, I also have the engine on idle. I have the engine on because I don't want to spend time if something happens real quick where I have to go upstairs, upstairs, start the engine, and then put it in gear and go. I'm going to go upstairs, put it in gear and go. So I would keep doing like a watch. I could see from inside my boat lights so I could keep my bearings. I knew if I was drifting or what the case would be. All right. It got to a point at about 2.30 in the morning or I couldn't see anything. So I got a little bit nervous. I talked to Charlie. I said, how you doing out there, buddy? You know, and just said, yeah, I'm doing okay. And then his radio went silent. So I went up on deck. He was, he was about four or 500 yards away from me, a little bit further out from the shore than I was. And uh, I couldn't see him. There was so much wind and so much water. Everything was horizontal, just horizontal. So I did, from my experience, I put on my snorkel mask. And the great thing about having a snorkel mask and a snorkel is that you can stand on the deck and the wind is blowing sideways and literally it will take your breath away with the rain pelting you. But with a snorkel mask, you can see, you can protect your eyes, of course, but you could also breathe. It makes it very difficult to drink beer and smoke cigars, but trust me, you want your eyes protected. So I, st- I was up on deck. I was trying to get a hold of Charlie, couldn't get a hold of Charlie, couldn't see any lights. And I stayed in this position for quite a while. Then at about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, started to gray, but the wind was still going, 115 miles an hour. You know, it was, it was cooking. And I was on deck. I turned around and I looked, and I could literally see the island. I could see the surf. Literally, my stern was right in front of where the breakers were occurring for the surf, which only put me like a hundred feet from the beach. So I threw the boat into gear. I set my autopilot to go forward. I didn't go fast, but I went fast enough just to beat the wind and the current that was pushing me there. Once I got that going, I ran forward and I released the anchor chain and all the anchor chain fell to the bottom, went right out the rollers. So I kept going and up and down and up and down. And I mean, the big swells were up and then I would come down, I'd go back up. And then when I started down, the prop would come out of the water. Now, anybody that knows uh, CT-54, the prop is pretty far underneath the, the the keel it's near the keel but it's you know it's way underneath the boat so you know so i had to gauge that and keep the engine rpms low so i wouldn't blow my engine up with extra rpms so i'm on the radio and i'm calling charlie i can't find charlie he's not answering i said okay well you know nothing i can do i just gotta you know look out for myself so 
the wind is starting to shift. It's starting to get brighter. And actually, the hurricane is sort of past us at this point, the eye of the hurricane. So the seas are pretty messed up, but the the rain and, you know, the super winds have all sort of died down, started to die down. And right now, all we have are these giant swells. You know, it's like going up and down on a roller coaster. You know, you go up and the engine would be, and then you'd go down and it would go, and dig in and then uh, like this. So we had to, you know, you had to be very careful about how you were steering up and down. So I went around the island of St. Kitts through the channel there with St. Eustace out into what we kind of refer to. It's, a, it's not exactly a channel, but it's a little bit of water between Saba, Eustace, and Nevis. And then on the other side of this open water is uh, St. Martin. So I was going to go to St. Martin. That's where I was going. So the sun came out. The sky was beautiful. I still had these big waves, but they were starting to go down a little bit. Um, I actually had taken off my foul weather gear. I was starting to get comfortable. Um, the boat was incredibly wet. I mean, inside and outside, it's amazing. You know, you, you think your boat is, is like super watertight. Go through a hurricane and then you'll find out if it's tight or not. So I'm going along and I guess at this time it was about 11, 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm pretty much out in the middle of the channel. Beautiful day. And I just looked over, caught out of the corner of my eye, I see this red thing. And I thought, oh, what is that? I get the binoculars out and I look. It's freaking Charlie. Charlie's in the water with a life jacket on. So I immediately turn. I go over to where he is, he's waving at me and yelling. I say, yeah, here I am, here I am. And I got to use my Jim buoy, which had been on the back of my boat. You all know what that is. It's that little quick life raft, life vest thing you throw out there. And and um, so I used that and got him all sorted with that. Well, you have to understand, I have a lot of freeboard on my boat, the CT. And you can't put a ladder down for him to climb up the ladder because the swell is so big it just lift the ladder up and destroy it. So I have to literally get him close enough to the boat to get him on the boat. Except the boat is like on an elevator. So I pull the line in, okay? And at the same time, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to get the boat to roll. I'm going forward into the wave. So I'm going up with the bow, down with the bow, up with the bow, down with the bow. So I get him and I'm literally dragging him along with the boat, even though I'm, you know, modulating and I'm, I'm, I take a couple of swipes at bringing him in. I shorten the line up a little bit. Then I put it in gear and then I take it out of gear just to keep myself stabilized and going forward. So I'm getting him closer and I'm getting him closer and I'm getting him closer. And I yell to him. I said, we're going to have to do this quick because if I shorten up the line, when I go down in the swell, he's literally like five feet from the side of the boat. And when I go up, all right, he's going to come and kiss the side of that boat with his face. 
And that's exactly what happened. And finally, I got him, literally grabbed him by the collar, threw him in the boat. And of course, he was really grateful. So he's telling me, you know, he's like, his eyes were big as saucers and he thought he was going to die and all the rest of the stuff. And I said, dude, do you want a beer? Why don't you have a beer? Let's have a beer. It's 11 o'clock in the morning, but it's Caribbean time. We can have a beer at 11. Come on. So I got him a beer and, you know, we started to, to just sit and relax. I got off, you know, some of his wet clothes and, and all the rest of the stuff. But he was still a little crazy, you know, with excitement with shock. But we had another five or six hours of sailing to go. So he just kind of calmed down and he seemed to be getting back into kind of a normal thing. Like, holy shit, that was close. Right? That was really close. So... I asked him what happened. And he says, you know, the dinghy, he was dragging the dinghy on a line, but the line was a piece of wire. It was wire, coated wire. And I said, what do you have a dinghy? Because the owner didn't want to lose the dinghy. That's the kind of man he is. He said he wasn't going to put on a polypropylene line or just a regular line. Okay, he wasn't going to do that. You know, he wanted something that when he had it hooked to the boat, it would stay. and It was going to be out of steel, right? Stainless steel. Except when he was going up, he didn't lengthen the line because it was just, it was too short. He couldn't make it any longer. He didn't lengthen the line. And I feel kind of bad about it because I, I probably should have said something, but I you know, when somebody has a painter, a painter is a painter. You know, if you're going to use a, a, a metal uh, wire painter, uh, that's who does that, right? Who does that? Because you want to have you want to have that, you know, in a storm like that, if your dinghy's going to be in the water like that, you want to have a nice long line. You want polyprope because that's going to float on the line on the water and it's not going to get in your way and it's going to stay out there strong enough. Let it go. Forget about it. The dinghy will be there when you're finished. Well, it turns out that somehow that wire got underneath and got in his prop and he said he went downstairs because the boat was real sluggish and the dinghy was actually nose underneath the transom and he realized what happened was that wire had gotten tied up around the prop and pulled the dinghy underneath it and literally had pulled the prop out of the engine in the transmission. And water was gushing in. And by the time he realized what was going on, the pumps couldn't keep up. The whole boat was flooded. He said the water was all the way up to the cabin soles and there was nothing that he could do. He said the boat sank like in 10 minutes. I said, well, did it sink or did it, did it sink? I mean, today's boats, folks, don't sink very easily. Um, they're fiberglass. There's lots of stuff. They'll, they could be swamped, 
even the deck could be covered with water. Even the house could be covered with water. But the mast is going to probably be there. He said, nope. He says, it just went down. And he said, I barely got off with my life vest on. I said, okay. Good story. Just happy you're safe. So we approach St. Martin, and there's a bridge that's on the that's between the by the airport between the Dutch side and uh, the French side. It's all the Dutch side, and there's a bridge that has to be let up uh, for you to kind of go under it, and that was blocked. There was uh, an island freighter that had sunk in front of the channel, in front of the bridge, in the channel. So that was that was all blocked. So we had to like spend another 45 minutes, 50 minutes, whatever, driving all the way around to get over to the French side. And, and I anchored in Marigot Bay. And that was about, by the time we got there, it was about 8, 9 o'clock. And I said, Charlie, just, you know, here, we had, we had a couple of whiskeys. We were happy to be there. And it was a perfect Caribbean night. Like nothing ever happened. It was beautiful. Water was calm. It was gorgeous. So Charlie says, well, I'm going to go get a hotel room. I said, do it in the morning. Just stay here on the couch. Go to sleep. Have a drink. Go to sleep. So he did. Next morning, we woke up. We were both woke up really early. I guess the adrenaline, you know, was was pumping. It was as soon as it got light again, we were up. So we hopped in my dinghy, went in, get some breakfast. So we went to Bar La Mer, which is this little um, funky little bar right on the right on the Quasette. And we were drinking Bloody Marys and eating pancakes and God knows what else. And there was a couple of other crews there that had weathered this, this storm too. So we were all hyped up. They eventually kicked us out, um, even though I, we spent hundreds of dollars in eating food. But, you know, when you coming down off of a real high adrenaline, you could eat like you can't believe and you could drink like you can't believe and whatever. So anyway, Charlie thanked me very much. He was very, very nice and all the rest of this kind of stuff. I told I told him that he had to report what happened. To I had to clear in to because this is France. This is I had to clear in with the French douane. Uh, so we went over. We cleared in. We explained to the French, you know, and they said, okay, whatever. They're pretty pretty cool. But anyway, we filled out some paperwork and all the rest of this stuff. I got my passport stamped. He got his passport, which thank God he had. And actually, he had another thing, too, is he had a whole bag of sapphires and diamonds. Hmm, pretty sketchy. But he didn't declare that. He told me that. He asked me if I wanted, uh, he would give me one. And I said, no, 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 that's okay. God knows where they came from. Um, so anyway, he he left. He got on the next airplane that he could, and he left. I hadn't seen him, never saw him again, but I was sitting, I was on in the harbor in St. Thomas and I was cleaning my boat and I was getting ready to go back down uh, to St. Martin and then I was going to go from St. Martin back to Nevis 
because I really wanted to get my anchor back. So who do I see walking down the dock but the owner of this boat? Of, and I'm like, dude. And he said, I was, I've been looking for you. I want to know where my boat is. I said, I don't know where your boat is. I want to know where my boat is. I said, the boat sank. Charlie said the boat sank. I just picked him up out of the water. What are you talking to me about? I want to know where my boat is. And I want to know where he, he said he dropped the anchor in Nevis. And I, I want to know where it is. And do you have it? And this guy got like all up in my grill. Well, there's one thing, folks, that you don't do is get up in my grill. I'm not that guy that you could intimidate at all. I don't care how big you are and how tough you think you are. I'm just not that kind of guy. I'm very peace, peaceful and, and loving and understanding, and I get it. But don't come spitting in my face and getting in my gear or something that's not true. And accusing me of stuff. I get upset. So off he left. He went down the dock and all the rest of this kind of stuff. I couldn't believe this guy. So, you know, I got back in the boat. And, you know, I time, you know, we're talking weeks here. And... Um, I went back to St. Martin. I was sitting in the bottom of the mare. And uh, one of the guys came and said, Hey, you know your buddy that you uh, saved out there in the, out there off of St. Martin? Do you know he committed suicide? I said, You've got to be kidding. He said, No, no, no. It's in the paper. So I went and I looked at the paper. I don't know how they found this out, but in the paper it talked about how this jeweler had, had, had gone back to his home in Alaska was in his cabin and committed suicide because of the experience that he had in the Caribbean and his boat sinking. It broke my heart. And it also points to, he, he could have written a brilliant, beautiful narrative for himself about being rescued, about beating the elements. He could have done a whole Hemingway thing in his life. But instead... That owner guy got in his head and gave him a piss ant narrative. And so I was I was really heartbroken by it. I went back down to Nevis and talked to a couple of people about it. I found the buoy with my anchor and anchor chain on it. I went diving down. I got it. I put it up back in the boat. It was no worse for wear. But one of the things I do remember is, at the time I said to myself, I know where his anchor is. Because I asked him to put a buoy on it. I told him to put a buoy on it. So I took my dinghy out and I found the buoy of where his anchor and chain were. I said, this is great. I'm going to take it off the bottom. And I did. Well, he had this beautiful 45-pound stainless steel Bruce anchor. I love that anchor. It made my boat look fantastic. And because the owner of that anchor, or former owner of that anchor, was such a unkind person, and a person who caused somebody whose life I saved, I figured that was reasonable payment. So, and I had a lot of chain too. Um, and it fit, by the way, my anchor or my windlass. 
So I put that up on the boat. Beautiful. Thank you. About a month later, I was literally in the marina in St. Martin. And this owner guy came up and went ballistic, wanting that stainless steel Bruce Anchor. I told him it wasn't his. I said, you can't even prove it was his. And we went through this whole thing. Eventually, the people in the marina said that this guy had been running around accusing people of sinking his boat, thinking that it was stolen, it was somewhere around, blah, blah, blah. He, he had gotten this narrative in his head that the boat was still around. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy's like, he's writing a crazy narrative. They arrested him. Actually, it was the Dutch police arrested him. So here's what I'm saying. These are two true stories. And unfortunately for Charlie wrote the wrong narrative. The people from Montserrat wrote the right narrative. I continue to try to write the right narrative for myself. And during this COVID quarantine, this is a, this is a way for you to write a good narrative. So all I want you to do is to write well. So those are interesting stories about how people are either able to adapt and change their story or being unable to change their story based on the circumstances of their life. And I know that is a common theme among a lot of self-help gurus, a lot of personal growth deals with the disconnect between your personal story and reality or what we perceive ourselves. Uh, my question for you is, what do you think is the biggest story we tell ourselves that holds us back? Oh, wow. I think for a lot of people, I think the biggest, the biggest problem that they have is, is they oscillate between complaint and grievance. And they do it sort of seamlessly. I, I think that, that, you know, when we have something unexpected happen to us, you know, say like a car accident or say something personal, like, you know, somebody close to us passes away. Um, that sort of tragedy is a kind of a, we can either, we can complain about that. Oh, well, they shouldn't have, that was a terrible thing. Duh, duh, duh. I feel so bad for myself that this is occurring. Or they have a grievance like that should have never happened. It's my fault or it's their fault or whatever fault you want to make it. And I think that behavior, the, the C&G behavior, the complaint and grievance behavior, um, doesn't allow for, for the cleansing and the clarity it takes to recognize the tragedy you're in regulate and understand your behavior and then understand that there's a window of adjustment and effect and then things sort of return to their to the same i mean in this story i describe my sister's murder and that took a long time to process 
but it taught me a lesson on how to deal with that kind of tragedy. Yeah. It's interesting because one of the one of the things that you learn early on in production and you know I've worked on a lot of a lot of films is a lot of times if you're standing around saying somebody should do this, somebody really should do this, that somebody is you. <laughs> if you see something that should be done, you should do it because oh. no one else is going to do it. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And in a way it's the same thing when you run a boat. You know, it's, it, you never would say that on a boat because everybody has clear lines of, of duty. And I think sometimes if you apply some of those standards to the way your life is, you know, what is your duty? You know, you have a duty to move on. You have a duty to do this. You have, this is your job as a human being. You have a civic duty, which we see very little of today in America. This is things that we really have to we have to sort of begin ingraining in our children again. That duty um, to themselves and, and to the people around them is is super essential to a successful life. Yeah, and duty to society as well. Oh, uh, what I call yeah, civic duty. People don't seem to understand that. Yeah, we have the Constitution, we have all of this stuff, but in order to be within our quote unquote American tribe you have certain responsibilities to do, which is like voting and obeying laws. If you don't, then you should be expelled or imprisoned from this tribe. And that's what civic duty is all about. Yeah. So what do you think Charlie was doing with those gemstones? It seems like he was doing something a little nefarious. Have you met a lot of these uh, nefarious characters during your travels? Oh, you know what? There's a lot. Of, I can tell a ton of stories on this. I mean, I I ended up being friends with a guy that was um, he was wanted by Interpol and he was literally stealing yachts and taking them down to Colombia and selling them. He had a girlfriend who was Colombian and selling them to drug people so they could have their own drug cartel people. Um and he was wanted by Interpol for all sorts of things. Um, but he was a really good sailor. He was sort of a modern-day pirate, um, kind of an interesting guy. But Charlie, I think Charlie and the owner of this boat, they were jewelers. And they were down there talking about gems. And there's a, there's a lot of that kind of thing that goes on uh, in the Caribbean. I mean, anybody that goes to a duty-free store, that's just the, that's just the uh, tip of the iceberg as far as jewelry and diamonds and other things like that. There's a whole transportation network of many things that go through the Caribbean. I mean, everything from pot and cocaine to jewels to weapons to people. I mean, it's, it, you name it, there is a smuggling operation for that. And I'll get into that. I have a story about that um, that I was involved in, and um, I, I think we'll 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 tee that story up here real soon. Okay, great. And so I understand that next week we are going to have a special guest come on board due to popular demand. Due to popular demand, uh, my buddy Tommy is going to come on board if. 
uh, some of our listeners remember me talking about um, Tommy and his guitars and all the things that he's created. Um, Tommy's going to come on and we're going to talk sailing. And we're going to talk about uh, going through the Panama Canal on a small sailboat. Uh, it should be pretty informative as well as funny because we've known each other for a long time and it's always funny. Great. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, stay tuned and we'll see y'all next week. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Tommy Ivisevich. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. Down in the South Texas streets of Laredo, I fell in love with a sweet Texan girl.